From the Southern Oral History Program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, this is Press Record, the podcast about the joys and challenges of learning history by talking to those who lived it. I'm Rachel Seidman. And I'm Charlotte Yore. Today's episode focuses on emotion in oral history. First, Charlotte sits down with Taylor Livingston to talk about emotion and how it comes through or doesn't in the transcript of an interview. Next, Carol Prince interviews Natalie Fusakis about how she handles and understands emotion as an oral historian. Finally, we'll offer some suggestions about how to prepare for and navigate the intense emotions that sometimes surface in oral histories. We do want to note that today's podcast contains discussion of sensitive topics, including violence and sexual abuse. Charlotte, you and your co-producer, Carol, came up with this idea. Where did that idea come from? I think for both of us, the topic of emotions is just really profound and something that whenever it is talked about in regards to oral history, a lot of the discussions that come out of that are just really beautiful and highlight a lot of the best parts of oral history. So we thought it would be a nice way to round out the summer podcasts to just talk about our feelings. (laughs) (laughs) I think that you're, you know, you're really right that emotions and the discussion of emotions is so important in oral history. And I think of it as central to all the different aspects of oral history, both how we prepare as interviewers and the methodology of doing the interview, and then also the role that it plays in the interviewee's experience, and then how we use oral history as researchers and kind of interpret the emotions that are revealed. History sometimes is really a dry kind of subject, especially when you're just reading in a textbook. Oral histories allow all of that emotion to be a really important part of the stories that we're learning, and it makes a bigger impact, I think, and it makes it easier to learn because you're able to connect emotionally with it, and it's not just a list of facts and dates. It's the stories that people tell. I did my first oral histories this past semester with the SOHP, and it was for the Black Pioneers Project. So I interviewed two of the first African-American students to attend UNC. And my very first interview was with James Womack, who was the first African-American cheerleader at UNC. He tells this story about a class he took where he was doing really, really well and was getting A's on his papers and A's on the exams. And he even discovered something that the professor didn't know about. And he wrote about it in his paper and his professor was praising him for this. And then he ended up getting a C in the class for the semester. And when he asked the professor about it, he just told him that that was the best grade that he could give him. when. Mr. Womack was telling this story. He started to cry. I'm standing at the grand pub. And he came up and he said, I guess you're a little surprised. You worked hard. You knew the material. But I can't give you anybody to see. I was wanting to like reach out and touch his hand or 
say something, um, but I just maintained eye contact with him as much as possible and waited. There were so many instances. Slights. There, I guess you have. You either had the choice of walking around angry all the time uh, and the unfairness or you would just put it away and just go. Afterwards, when I went home, I just kept thinking back to looking at him and seeing his hands. There was just something so incredibly vulnerable about him in general, but especially in that moment. And I started crying just thinking about him and thinking about the way we treat elderly people and how every single person has all of those feelings inside. And we that's what we share is that kind of vulnerability and these emotional experiences, even if the stories we have are different, that we've all had moments that were incredibly painful that we carry with us our whole lives. It also made me think about how it was very obvious that no kind of restorative justice or mm. anything like that had been, no steps had been taken by the university to acknowledge even the injustices that he faced while he was here. And I think that's part of why it was still so painful to him is that it happened and then he moved on with his life and nothing mm -hmm. was ever done about it. Here is a living person who experienced that kind of racism. I'm speaking with him. It wasn't that long ago that this happened. And I'm glad that interview is going to be in the archives for people to listen to. In this segment, I sat down with Taylor Livingston, who is a PhD candidate here at UNC in the anthropology department and a field scholar at the SOHP. She ran the internship program at the SOHP. She taught me while I was there, and it was really great. And she's going to speak about an exercise that she does where she has students read a transcript and then listen to the audio and discuss the differences. So the exercise, as you know, I do this in the, the classes that I teach about oral history and also in the oral history workshops that we offer as part of the SOHP. So one of the things in the brief introduction of oral history that I do is play this one clip from our SoundCloud page. And before I play the clip, I have them read the transcript. It's Venny Moore who speaks about her time growing up in North Carolina and having to leave school at the half-day mark in order to go pick cotton. And so when you read the transcript and she's reflecting on this time, you get the sense that she really enjoyed the time that she spent in the cotton fields because she, she talks about getting to clown around and, you know, being like a movie star, trying to be the center of attention and, distract and, and to distract people. And she said that she liked it more than school even. They sort of asked them, what sort of sense do you get from the transcript, you know? And most... Everyone, most, I'll say every. Everyone says, you know, that she really liked it and that it was a fun time in her life. People were paying attention to her and, you know, she really didn't care about having to be there or being at school. And then I played the clip. And it sort of follows suit to the interpretation 
that you get from just reading the transcript in, in the beginning. She's laughing. <laughs> and I'd have them laughing, doing just anything. <laughs> when she's reflecting on this time about the silly things that she she did when she was a kid. Because I could cut up out there, you know. And I, they give me attention, you know. It was like I was a movie star, you know. They, they wouldn't pick no cards. <laughs> They'd stand and look at me and I'd entertain them. And then towards the end, there's this pause. Everything sort of shifts and changes at that pause. You can sort of hear the wheels turning in her head as she's reflecting back on this memory where she says, We pick cotton. And the people we be picking cotton for well, their children be going to school. And they go to school all day and we get out. Well, that was the rule. The black children picked cotton, the white children went to school. And so it shifts this focus of a happy childhood memory for her at the beginning, or even if you're reading the text, to this part where in the audio you sort of hear the pain and the bitterness and the sadness in her voice at the fact that how unfair life was. One of the powers of, of the oral and oral history is getting to hear the emotions. And you don't necessarily get that interpretation. You don't get to hear the cadence and the intonation and the rhythm versus when you're just reading the transcript. So much of our communication now, we miss the audio, and which I think is interesting as humans, you know, as an anthropologist, because what we are sort of through natural selection evolved to hear the registers are human voices. Mm -hmm. That's like what we pick up best. And I think that if you don't have the human voice with the rhythm, cadence, and all of those sort of subtle cues as to whether they're being facetious or not, or whether, you know, it's the case with, with Miss Moore as you're sort of capturing the sorrow and the anger and the bitterness of that. That is the hallmark of oral history and that it's been part of our human history for so long as oral stories handed down and down from generations. You get to hear it from their perception. That's definitely the message that you get from the exercise. It broadens, it broadens your worldview and hopefully makes you a more empathetic person. I just feel like our society likes to squash emotions and everybody has to be very formal and like keep it to yourself. Yeah, and I think this is where I put on my feminist spectacles that are basically always glued to my face. And I think that that's, in our patriarchal culture, I'm going to use the P word, <laughs> that's the norm for the public is mm -hmm. a standard male perspective and, and, and not just any male, Rational. you know, a white middle class male perspective of what behavior is acceptable and whether that be, in my work, I think a lot about bodies and embodiment and, you know, how that shapes this. But even if we think about the emotional aspects of the body and, and what's expected, it's supposed to be a very stoic, private it's this stoicism and that showing emotion makes you vulnerable. And being vulnerable in public and public spaces is not 
something that you're supposed to do because I think being vulnerable is something that isn't respected in public life. It's something that's respected in, in private relationships. And I think that's one of the, the powers of hearing someone's voice is that hearing that emotion, it makes it real. It makes them a more vulnerable person and you're more likely to have empathy for that person and to try to understand their perspective and life experiences. It's stuff I think about so much. Being vulnerable is a sign of weakness. I think it's a sign of strength because it's scary. It like is scary. Yeah, it's really risky. It's really but risky to put yourself out there. That's the only way that there. you can have a connection with mm-hmm. someone else is to be open. Mm-hmm. I think it's just sad that we put so much emphasis on being able to articulate yourself in the most proper way. And that's the only way that you're allowed to make sense of your experiences. Oral history is in that realm of allowing people to just express themselves in their most authentic and personal way. And it's just really beautiful. It's sort of reclaiming of the feminine and vulnerability. But I think for a long time, that oral history was sort of poo-poo because, because of that. Speaking about vulnerability, it provides a texture to more of a texture to historical events, you know, reading about it in in a textbook versus hearing about it from the people that experienced it. It makes you think of how you would have felt if you were going through those those same things. It's different than if you read sobbing versus if you hear someone break down and cry. That that crack, you know, thinking about public presentation of self and private presentation of self and that crack in the veneer where you see someone's true self and emotions emerging. That's something you definitely can't get from from a transcript mm-hmm. and you have to listen you have to be willing to listen in this next segment carol prince interviewed natalie fusakis a former SOHP graduate student, but today she is the director of the Center for Oral and Public History and an associate professor of history at California State University at Fullerton. Natalie and I arranged to talk on the phone, which is a first professor cord, and after many technical difficulties and audio software experiments later, Natalie and I were able to have a conversation about emotion and oral history. We're really happy to have you on Press Record. Just by starting off, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your background in oral history and your current project. Sure. I I got my start in oral history a little over 20 years ago as a graduate student at UNC working at the Southern Oral History Program. From my first interview forward, I was a convert to oral history. I've been a women's historian since I was at Chapel Hill, and I've always been interested in women in politics, which leads me to my current project. I decided that I really wanted to focus on women and local politics in Southern California. California. And we're basically interviewing women who have served in office, but also women who have been critical advocating from the outside. When we talked earlier, you said that emotion and oral history has been on your mind, especially with this work. Can you talk a little bit about why? I think one of the reasons that emotion has been so forward on my mind is that these interviews, both for me and for some of the women that I've interviewed, have been emotional. They've been emotional because 
the the route to being in politics wasn't necessarily easy. They went through a variety of other life choices, careers before they ended up going into politics. In addition, especially with these interviews, I've been doing a lot of interviews with former uh, Los Angeles City Council members. And um, so there's there was also some emotion between the women themselves. They all don't really differ in policy, but they definitely had moments of conflict. And so when they would were talking about these moments, they got emotional, not necessarily in the traditional way of crying, although some did. And so I felt sort of the emotion of all of them. And they don't all necessarily want to be each other's best friends, but I was compelled to love them all. So I was dealing with my own complex feelings about these women. Do you have a specific example maybe that comes to mind when you think about women that you've interviewed that haven't necessarily expressed emotion in the traditional way that we think about women expressing emotion? I interviewed one woman who was attacked while running for the city council, attacked brutally by a man who broke into her house and slit an artery in her throat and she almost died. And she told that story very powerfully, but without really any emotion. To me, it was emotional because listening to someone describe their attack and then her recovery from that while literally being on the ballot and ending up getting elected to the city council. She wasn't particularly emotional about that. But later in the interview, when she talked about a moment where her district got literally moved to another part of the city in her final year in office... Visual cues told me that she was feeling a lot of pain about this. Her eyes were welling up with tears, which struck me that this was really painful for her. And it was painful for me to listen. And she used strong language, like she used the word hate, which I rarely hear. And I don't, she, she's not a hateful person, but this moment for her, I think it felt like the rug got pulled out from under her after years of advocating and working hard and to have your district move to a place that you don't even live in way on the other side of the city was just so raw. I I don't know that I've ever actually been in an interview where the emotion was that raw before. And we're talking a decade over later, she's not really recovered from it yet. Over your career as an oral historian, maybe thinking beyond just this project that you're currently working on, are there certain kinds of questions that you find have provoked strong emotional responses in people that you've interviewed? Yes and no. And by that, I mean, yes, there are some questions that over the course of time seem to have evoked emotion. For example, if people's parents have died, but their mother or father were a particularly important person in their life. I have found that when you just ask a basic question, can you tell me about your relationship with your mother or your relationship with your father? What were they like? People break down. I interviewed a man who I asked him, you know, can you share some memories about your mother? And immediately he started to cry. And I have had other people doing that about important family members. But then I've also asked questions where you don't necessarily know that it's going to go emotional. And to me, those are sometimes the more shocking moments when emotion comes out that I'm not expecting. Like this woman telling me about her district moving, I wasn't necessarily, I think I had asked some question about something else and she brought this story up. And so it went this direction that I wasn't even anticipating. You know, I had prepared for, she's going to tell me about her attack. That could be emotional, but I wasn't really prepared for this. Earlier in my career, when I was doing an interview for the Southern Oral History Program, a woman, I had asked her about her involvement in Planned Parenthood and NARAL, 
and why she was so stridently pro-choice. And she told me her story of her father taking her to get an illegal abortion. And it was an extremely emotional story. Perhaps I got more emotional than she did. She told it with a lot of emotion, but I was the one that ended up in tears. And, and now 20 years later, I can't remember if she cried or not, but um, I didn't see it coming, you know? So I was unprepared for my own response to the emotional story she was telling. I was going to ask about a moment when you've been personally affected or have found yourself responding emotionally in an interview and how you process and decompress. Well, like I said, the one with the woman telling me her illegal abortion story, I was both, you know, had tears in my eyes and was trying to kind of maintain. I've never stopped an interview because I got so emotional. And, and this was early in my career. It's probably my fourth or fifth interview I've ever done. So I was just trying to keep it together and keep the interview going, not hiding my emotion, but trying not to perhaps have a full breakdown. <laughs> right. But I think for me in general, the, the effect of the emotion in interviews is really what happens to me after I leave. These, these women on the city council that I've interviewed who've shared these emotional stories, and some of them not so much emotional, you know, in their telling, but to me as a women's historian, the power of the story of these women in politics and what they did in politics affected me emotionally. And maybe that's just because I've been studying women in politics so long and then to get into the nitty gritty with these women who really went through a lot to do what they were doing. If I read about all these women ever in one article, how do I unpack all of that and what do I do with it? And so I also feel sort of the power of I'm now the protector of their story or I have, the you know, the burden is on me to make sure that when I tell their story, I tell it in a way that I still do my job as a historian, but I am respectful of where they're individually coming from. I think that's going to be a really complicated process for me. That's definitely a daunting task. We talked a little before about how interviewing women politicians is interesting because they have a public life and a public face. How is that different from maybe people that you've interviewed that are less well-known in the public sphere when it comes to emotion and things that come up in one-on-one -on -one interviews? I think for me, part of what has been interesting about these interviews with women who are in public life or were in public life is that they have a public story. So how do I get them to break from that narrative? And I think in some of the cases, the reason why the emotion came out is they told their story without trying to protect, well, what would this be like if I was getting doing this with a newspaper reporter? You know, for, there's a comfort in the oral history process that I think allowed them to tell stories in ways that I'm imagining they haven't really told in public. And then, you know, I've interviewed lots of women activists who are not known in the public. And for those who are grassroots activists who've never gotten kind of the attention that I as a historian think they deserve, just being interviewed is a validation that what they did was important. So, Rachel, for this tip jar, we're thinking that you surely have a lot of advice as a very experienced oral historian about how to prepare emotionally for interviews, how to deal with emotions as they arise during an interview, and then also how to cope with your own emotions afterwards. So I talk to my students a lot about this, and it, and it can be a 
almost an uncomfortable conversation to have with students, I find, because when you sort of admit what a powerful experience this can be, you are admitting that you are a, you know, a vulnerable person, not just a objective historian. <laughs> you know, that they're not used to professors talking about stuff like that, and they don't tend to believe ahead of time that this can be an emotionally exhausting experience. When you're planning an interview, don't squeeze it in between a big exam and, you know, the meeting you have to have with your school newspaper or something. Especially afterwards, you're going to need some time to kind of decompress. And in some cases, an interview just goes pretty smoothly and there's nothing big that you will have to deal with. But I, I have had experiences where I need significant time afterwards to try to process what I just heard. And so I had one interview where a woman was talking to me about growing up, and she said something about her father that piqued my curiosity. I heard something in her tone of voice or something that she said that seemed odd, and I, I just asked her a question about her father. And suddenly this story of incest just came pouring out. That was the most intense emotional experience I had in an interview. It was a huge challenge to manage my own emotions. How much do I ask follow-up questions? How much do I just let this go? How much do I express concern or, you know, sympathy, empathy for her? Really, my heart was beating fast, and I, you know, I, I really had a, a very difficult time handling that. And I remember just sort of going into my office afterwards and shutting the door and needing time to just be alone. You do need to kind of be prepared that something like that could happen. So leaving yourself time, recognizing that just because a story is painful that someone needs to tell, that like Charlotte, you were saying you just maintained eye contact with that gentleman and gave him the respect and the attention and the space to tell his story we tell interviewers that you can give someone the option of pausing the recording, right, so that they can kind of get themselves together. But, I, you know, I don't think we should make someone feel like they should pause the recording as though what's happening is somehow not appropriate for the historical record. I mean, it's not like emotion is not present in, quote unquote, regular historical research. It is. But it's a different experience when you are living through the moment, like you said, with the person across the table from you. It's funny to me that students are skeptical, I guess, that they might have an emotional experience because it's such an intimate thing to sit across from someone and listen to their life story. It speaks to how we sort of expect a lot of our lives to not be emotional or to be more distanced and formal with each other, but it's okay to be emotional. And the more that we are learning about that and are willing to accept that about ourselves, then an easier time we'll have of making sense of our emotions and interpreting them. You know, we're very trained to talk about ourselves in a particular way for public consumption. And we learn these ways to talk about challenges that we've met and overcome. Often, we don't 
talk about what was the challenge or what was the hard part. We sort of skip over that and we mask the vulnerable parts, the hard parts. And so I try to talk to my students about listening for those kinds of words like challenges and overcoming. And I actually learned this from my dad, who wrote a book about interviewing. My dad always is very skeptical about the notion of an adventure. For it to be an adventure means something went wrong. (laughs) Something was difficult. Something was hard. We're trying to pay close attention. Then maybe we can ask questions that will reveal a different side to it that might have a different emotional tone. I remember another example with a student who had done an interview with this woman who I noticed when I listened to it that she would often laugh right after telling a story that seemed actually quite painful. But her tone of voice remained at a very calm level, and so it was very easy to miss the pain of that. Those moments of laughter were moments where she could ask a follow-up question because actually they were clues to anger or disappointment or frustration. The more you interview people, the more you can kind of learn what are clues to emotion that aren't always as obvious as crying when something is sad or laughing when something is funny can get much more complicated than that. Thanks for listening to Press Record, the podcast from the Southern Oral History Program at the University of North Carolina. I'm Rachel Seidman. And I'm Charlotte Yore. This episode was produced and edited by Charlotte and Carol Prince. And this was Charlotte's last episode with us here. I'm so sad to see you go, and I wish you the best moving forward. Thank you, Rachel. It's been a really wonderful experience. I have a million emotions about it ending, but I know Carol will keep producing great episodes, and I'll be listening. Special thanks to Natalie Fusakis and Taylor Livingston for their contributions. We want to hear from you. Email us at pressrecordsohp at gmail.com, tweet us at SOHP Oral History, and be sure to follow and rate us on iTunes and SoundCloud. To find more information and hear the full version of oral history interview excerpts featured in this episode, check out our website at sohp.org podcast.